0: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production.
1: Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join
2: us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, Find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois-Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest what-ifs. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to the Holy Roman Empire, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, A History of Valois Burgundy.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to America Secret Wars, the podcast all about the forgotten, overlooked, and deliberately buried times the United States has used military force to fight or occupy foreign soil. I am your host, Trevor Cully, and for my inaugural guest today, I have Asha from the Swords, Sorcery, and Socialism podcast. Asha, how the hell are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm excited to get the ball rolling on this thing.
1: Honored to be the inaugural guest.
0: We'll set you up in front of the Capitol with the biggest audience, the best audience anybody's (laughs) ever had, we swear. All right, uh, brass tacks. I am also the host of the History of Persia, a podcast telling the stories of ancient Iranian empires between 700 BC and 700 CE, and you can find that at historyofpersiapodcast.com, just like you can find this podcast at, I'll insert this bit later. Hello there. This is Trevor, but from the future. You can find this podcast online at secretwarspod.com and on social media at History of Persia, or History of Persia Podcast. I realized I'm not going to maintain two different social media accounts for this, and the people I know who try end up posting basically two accounts worth of the exact same thing. So, follow me, Trevor Cully, at History of Persia, and find details about America Secret Wars at secretwarspod.com. First of all, I did toss a very mild curse word into the introduction on purpose, mostly because I tried to keep history of Persia as PG as possible within the bounds of ancient history. But that's also a show where I'm presenting information on my own and I have no interest in figuring out how to censor this. I expect we'll talk about a lot of subjects that will piss people off while going through all of America's secret wars. Plus, I like swearing. So there's your content warning for that, and I'll try to sound as little like a 13-year-old who just learned what the curse words are as I can.
1: That's what the guests are for, right?
0: Exactly. Speaking of, I've obviously also got guests, which is a change from my other show's format, so this is going to be more of a conversation and, as much as we can, humor and banter than when it's just me talking about ancient Persia with my cat. It's also... Not the subject I'm academically trained in. I'm not going to dive quite as deep. I'm going to be jumping around in space and time from episode to episode just to keep things fresh and avoid getting pigeonholed as a podcast with one time period. So I started formulating this show in 2020 when I was bored and in a Midwestern swamp watching the whole world go to shit listening to other political and history podcasts and falling down various rabbit holes where I discovered that the United States has been invading or occupying countries more consistently in our history than I had been led to believe in my Pennsylvania public school education. (laughs) And I'm a history nerd. God only knows what went in one ear and out the other for other people who weren't paying attention in class. So just to get a sense of things, Asha, how do you feel about history at high school?
1: Well, I, if I'm remembering clearly, of all my years of like history through high school graduation, I think there was one single time where my history class made it past uh, the end of the Civil War, because every year we'd start again at 1492, every single time. And I, so I remember warning about like Juan Ponce de Leon, like a thousand times. But uh, we, we learned, uh, I, we got past Reconstruction, I think one time, and that was my AP U.S. History class. And that was also a class where, if I remember correctly, we spent an entire class period on different types of Civil War cannonballs. And we also spent one class period split between Korea and Vietnam
0: solid yeah, yeah. That, that checks out yeah
1: so uh i would say that it was severely lacking for anything besides learning the spanish explorers and the revolutionary war
0: yeah that sounds just about like my american history education 1492 to 1866 depending on the class and how it broke down um we got a little bit past it in the AP history class, which was funny because the that was my junior year of high school, and the yep, same. like regular speed class for history that year was 20th century history. So they started at Reconstruction. I've never made it past Reconstruction in a history class. We covered World War Two in about three days, yep. and I my entire Cold War education from school was doing a PowerPoint presentation on uh, Operation Cyclone and how the CIA helped in the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan.
1: Uh, yes.
0: That was my whole knowledge of the Vietnam War era was Soviet Afghanistan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I think I split one hour long class period where the first half was Korea and then the other 30 minutes was Vietnam. So, yeah, what that accounts for is basically nothing. Uh, Yeah.
0: And this like that's partly a consequence of I think our history curriculum needs updated because all our curriculums are old as shit and we need to recognize you know 250 years either we can scale back on the details about spanish explorers who settled in places that are not part of the country or just split it into two classes it's fine it's okay to teach kids about world war 1 I. I i get the political apprehensions of going beyond that but we'll get we'll get there that's the episode 2 of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> So here's the deal. Every other week, at least for now, I'm going to talk about some event where we went up against another country, why that happened, and what it means for the rest of history. Sometimes that's just a real WTF story, like the time that we had a fleet of ships dedicated to punishing random islanders. Other times it's going to be wars you've heard of but don't know anything about. Like all of those ones after 1945.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like Panama or Granada.
0: Yeah, the the ones that uh, Gen X nominally fought in. Uh, <laughs> this is going to include anything involving the six branches of the military, and yes, even the goddamn Space Force. Oh. Though God willing... I won't ever have to talk about the latter. I am also including anything covered by the Federal Militia Acts. I may or may not let the CIA count sometimes, depending on how I feel.
1: So it probably depends on how directly involved in the violence they were, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, or just if it makes a good enough story. Like, I'll probably talk about Operation Cyclone, like I mentioned earlier, because I just think that story's neat. The official version is that we did not send any troops to Afghanistan, and that's just a thing that the Rambo movies made up. (laughs) This this podcast is dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen.
1: (laughs) Particularly John Rambo. (laughs) Look, if he can shoot down a helicopter with a bow and arrow. I think he deserves our military respect.
0: I've seen some helicopters. I buy it. <laughs> Soviet helicopters? Easy.
1: <laughs> well, that, to be fair, probably crashed because the uh, the Soviet soldiers had stolen the fuel out of it to strain it and burn it and turn it into an alcohol that they could drink. So it probably actually ran out of fuel and fell out of the sky.
0: Yeah, and this is why that war is going to end up on this podcast, because it's too weird not to
1: okay, so what are you going to scare me with today?
0: Well, right. So it turns out that when you dig into this stuff, the United States got about 18 months or so of something that more or less resembled peace right after the British pulled out following the revolution. And then we basically spent the rest of our history from March 1785 onwards fighting somebody. To be fair, a lot of that isn't really what we'd call war in the conventional sense, but it does fall under my jurisdiction here. To give a little perspective, can you guess, Asha, how much of American history has been spent using military force against other sovereign nations?
1: 87%.
0: When I looked into this working off of a 2004 congressional report called Instances of Use of United States Armed Forces Abroad, a cursory glance showed there were fifteen individual years where we didn't at one point send troops to fight, occupy, or threaten somebody. Fifteen fucking years. <laughs> Since 1785.
1: You know, those were fifteen good years, all completely spaced out and not consecutive in any way.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, you we're gonna we're about to get into that. <laughs> Do you know what the very first conflict the independent United States had with another nation was after winning independence?
1: Does Canada count as an independent nation at this point, or are they still part of the UK? Well, either case, uh, is it Canada? Did we evade Canada, like, immediately?
0: We had invaded them already a couple of times during the revolution. Uh, there was Uh a weird episode where Newfoundland almost became the 14th colony, um, Hell yeah. Like, they were our primary source of naval support early on. But, no. Have you ever heard of the First Acony War? Or the Trans-Oconee Republic?
1: No. I have no idea what that is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Neither of us are from the South, so I wasn't really expecting this to ring anything close to a bell. Even trying to do research for this episode, I could barely find anything any information
1: or you tell me what it is my first guess it would it would be that it was you know like an indigenous group of some kind but i feel like then we might have even then we probably might have heard of it and somewhere or another is existing online so i feel like this is going to be some random group of settlers who are like oh no we're actually our own independent republic totally in louisiana or something
0: yeah, weirdly enough it's kind of both uh all right. For for the purposes of at least the first 30 or so episodes, I'm going to try and avoid the bizarre number of groups of settlers who did that as the main story for the episode. But yeah, the independent republic of Franklin comes up uh, over the course of this episode. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Look, people were just setting up independent republics left and right back then.
0: Yeah, Vermont was independent until, like, 1794.
1: (laughs) Look, I don't think they've forgotten, to be honest with you.
0: No, Vermont is everything Texas pretends to be.
1: That's Yeah, that's very true.
0: (laughs) So the Oconee War comes up as parts of other books, but it's either a brief thing or scattered out of chronological order to discuss its effect on other topics. One of the most detailed histories I could find was just one chapter of Gordon Burns Smith's History of the Georgia Militia, 1783 to 1861, which is a title that should give at least a sense of the book's perspective.
1: Uh, yeah, just a little.
0: Wonder why it ends in 1861 for the Georgia Militia.
1: <laughs> mm. one more. Nothing happened after that. Don't look into it.
0: No, it's actually just that, uh... It's volume one of a set, but there's a reason that year transitions history for Georgia. (laughs) The only thing I found specifically about the war I'm trying to talk about today was a series of three articles from 2004 just titled The Oconee War by Stephen Scurry for Flagpole, a magazine covering local culture in Athens, Georgia.
1: Shout out to our local reporters.
0: Yeah. Yeah, support local journalism, people. It's sometimes the only place information is going to be preserved. The Oconee River is a 220-mile-long body of water that runs through most of east-central Georgia, the state, the the American state, not the Republic Nation state in the Caucasus. This is important for reasons you'll see in episode two. Uh, it runs more or less parallel to the Akmulge River, until the latter makes a sharp bend east, intersecting with the Akoni to form a river called the Altamaha before flowing into the Atlantic. You may notice that these names that I'm butchering do not sound particularly English because they aren't.
1: Yes, they sound pretty indigenous to me.
0: Yeah, uh huh. Akoni, Akmolgi, and a ton of other names that we're going to be mentioning are all from the Hichti language. And if you're not from the state of Georgia, and frankly, I'm guessing even if you are, I doubt you've ever heard of the Hitchti people or their language. There's a better chance that you've heard of the Muskogee, which is the larger cultural linguistic group of indigenous peoples that the Hitchti were part of. If Muskogee isn't ringing any bells, you're more likely to know them as the Creek, which is probably derived from all of these rivers and creeks, in central Georgia. The Muskogee just had one word for running bodies of water like this, and since a lot of them identified themselves with specific bodies of water, European settlers heard a whole bunch of people referring to themselves and their home territory as Creeks. The Muskogee tribe was the largest of this broad group, including the Hichdi, and so they sort of become the overarching banner for the group over time. Today, the Muskogee Nation holds territory in Oklahoma and officially includes members of tribes with different linguistic and cultural history, like the Shawnee, who might ring a bell for anybody who grew up in the same area as me. And like a lot of Native Americans today, the Muskogee did not originate in the area of their modern reservation, given everything I've said so far. No before. way! Yeah, funny how that happened. You mean, you mean
1: they're, not, they're not all originally from Oklahoma? Wild.
0: Yeah, don't worry, Andrew Jackson will be a recurring character on this podcast.
1: Jesus Christ. Yeah, I bet.
0: Given everything I've said so far, it's probably not surprising to hear that they originated in the southeast and were forcibly relocated as part of the Trail of Tears. And uh, because I know I'm intentionally targeting a more leftist audience... I just want to acknowledge a few things. One, I'm not going to do that thing where I refer to everything as so-called whatever most of the time, because that would get really old really fast, and that's just a longer way of saying modern whatever. I'd much rather call some place or somebody by their original name than point out that I'm not doing it. Also, if you haven't guessed already, this show is going to include a ton of wars with indigenous nations, because they were, and are, sovereign nations, even if they are not fully independent, nation states. I had originally intended to open the show with a land acknowledgement stating which indigenous people used to inhabit the place that I'm sitting my white ass in right now. The thing is, I'm in St. Louis, and this land is so fucking stolen that I can't even figure out who I should be acknowledging.
1: Oof. I mean, I could probably probably do it for where I live, because I'm in central Wisconsin. I could probably figure it out.
0: Yeah, it doesn't help that the most famous native culture in this area declined rapidly right before Columbus arrived. So, like, we have the Cahokia Mound City nearby, but that, like, the area was kind of empty when the French turned up. But back to the Muskogee and the Oconee River. By 10,000 BC—yes, we're doing context— human beings had reached the New World, a.k.a. North America— And it really was a brand new world for people at that point. Not long after that, the Bering Land Bridge was swallowed by the sea, and continents and islands of the Western Hemisphere were just the world. For about 9,000 years, these first Americans were mostly hunter-gatherers, there weren't a ton of people, and there were a shitload of species that hung around as the last glacial period came to an end, and they got to go extinct through a combination of massive climate change and human hunting, something that has never happened again.
1: Never never will. We're, we're too good for that now.
0: So it's not until an 1000 BCE that you start to get stuff like pottery and agriculture popping up among the ancestors of the Muscogee. From that point until European contact around 1500, Historians and other academics call a huge swath of related people across the southern U.S. Mississippians, named after the river. These were the mound-building cultures with giant pyramid-like earthworks as the big centerpieces of their towns and cities, i.e. Cahokia, which I just mentioned a minute ago. Muscogee oral histories actually describe the process of migrating from the west closer to the Mississippi down to the Oconee River, and their wars with other indigenous nations before white folks turned up. The first Europeans they met were then Spanish conquistadors making their first expedition on the mainland after Christopher Columbus brought word back to Europe that there was a whole bunch of stuff over here that they could pillage and exploit. And
1: they found that like Spanish guy that was like looking for the Fountain of Youth or whatever, whichever one that was.
0: Yep, that would be Hernando de Soto.
1: Yeah.
0: He was a conquistador who led the first major expedition into the North American interior, including, interestingly enough, a slave who was probably the first Muslim person to make landfall on the mainland United States. He actually went on to get his freedom and join uh, with, I don't remember which one of the tribes that they encountered, but he just hung out with them for the rest of his life.
1: Starting a pretty long uh, tradition of Esca- of, of, of escaped or freed slaves uh, joining indigenous groups, which is, a, which is a thing that would go on for quite some time in the Americas.
0: And probably to no surprise, that's going to become a factor in this story. Mm. Now, this was a Spanish conquistador who showed up with a fully equipped Spanish army, and they set out to plunder the areas that are now Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. In the end, the Spaniards didn't hold on to most of this In the short term, they'd eventually get a lot of it back. Tribes they were encountering at this point had never seen anything like this. They were working with, at best, the equivalent to European Bronze Age technology and got absolutely destroyed by any attempt to fight the Spanish. This would change pretty quickly as European traders started bringing them things like guns and gunpowder and bullets, which makes shooting Spanish people a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in response to the rapid encroachment of other groups including both indigenous people and europeans into their hunting lands the muskogee tribes banded together to form the muskogee confederacy sometime in the early 1600s this was tribes broken down into villages with extended families clans spread out among different villages within the same tribe and of course None of these lines are ever straightforward, and people moved around, married one another, and so on and so forth.
1: It's not often when you're doing a thing about American history, you can hear the word confederacy, and it's good.
0: At least as good as it's ever gonna get. And this will not be the only confederacy involved in this war today. (laughs) Not that one.
1: No, we're still too early for that
0: one. By now, we are into the 1600s, and more white people are turning up, mostly British and French colonists... And as the Europeans spread out, they brought Christian missionaries with them who desperately wanted to save the Indians from their backwards ways of not already being European. Unfortunately for the Muscogee, they were right at the intersection of British Georgia, Spanish Florida, and French Louisiana. So not only did they spend the following century fighting to keep their lands to themselves, but also getting dragged into the wars fought by all of these new neighbors.
1: That sounds like the worst place possible to be. I think. Like, to have all three European nations immediately, like, on your doorstep, that sounds fucking terrible.
0: Yeah, like, all of the indigenous tribes of the Appalachian region got stuck between the French and the British for a while, but only the Muskogee had the bad luck of being stuck with the Spanish next to them, too. They're just smashed in the middle of all three colonial powers in North America. Ugh. And... Uh, I don't know. I've never had to do this with another person before. Uh, I don't know. Go get dragged into some wars between advertisers, and we'll be right back.
3: <laughs> Gamarajoba. My name is Roberto. And I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Saccharvello, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Cartevelli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacarvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacarvelo, Georgia. You can find us on Twitter at History underscore Georgia. Sacarvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E- Oh, now back to your regularly scheduled podcast,
0: and we're back. So we've set up a Muscogee Confederacy and how they're kind of stuck at the crossroads of European powers. Like basically every other indigenous nation in the world, they were gradually overwhelmed and incorporated as mostly autonomous subjects of the various colonial projects unfolding around them, as their territory became ever more restricted. There were two big wars fought between the French and the British in the 18th century— where both sides dragged their native allies into it with them. The first is the somewhat poorly named French and Indian War from 1754 to 1763. In any reasonable analysis, this is just the starting point and North American theater of the Seven Years' War, which was basically a world war before it was cool, with all the major colonial powers duking it out across the globe, because they had so many fucking colonies. Also, it was started by George Washington being a dumbass.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, that's where we get, like, our first uh, mentions of the old the old G-Man, George Washington, because he was, like, an officer for the British at the time, right? In some sort of shitty frontier fort.
0: Yes, uh, he was a Virginia militia officer sent to secure the forks of the Ohio from the French, and... Along the way, he ran into a guy called Jumanville, who uh, got scalped by one of George Washington's uh, native allies. Uh, And now the place where he died is a summer camp that I went to as a kid.
1: (laughs) Scalping one of the skills they teach you at the summer camp.
0: Uh, no, it, it was a it's a now a Christian summer camp with a like 80 foot cross uh, on top of the big mountain overlooking the camp. Uh, and it was real startling to learn when I was like 10 or 11 that this camp that I'd been to many times uh, and like the rocks that I had climbed on were where the first world war started. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. Ohio, oh, chalk up another giant L for Ohio.
0: And ah, this mm. one's Pennsylvania now. It's the Ohio River.
1: Look, you expect me to know the Ohio Rivers in other states? Come on. I'm an American. You think I I don't know my own geography, let alone world geography. Come on.
0: It, it's just barely in Pennsylvania to start uh, and is like 33% of Pittsburgh's pride and joy. <laughs> now, if you're any good at math, which I don't think either of us can claim, uh, You will notice, though, that 1754 to 1763 is nine years and not seven. That's because it was isolated to just North America for the first two, and because nine years war was already taken. (laughs) Look,
1: the Europeans have been at this for a while, okay?
0: Yeah, seven, nine, thirty, hundred. I'm sure there's more in there. Real creative naming stuff, too. For a bit in the mid-aughts, there was a movement to start calling this the War for Empire, and that never really took off.
1: It's got too much of like, a, I think historians wouldn't take to that one because it sounds like a little bit too much editorializing. You know, like it has like it, like calling it the war for empire makes it sound like there's like a moral judgment, which I think a lot of academic historians probably wouldn't like. It may be accurate, but I don't think they'd like it.
0: I mean, it was very blatantly a war for who would have more empire. I don't think that's unfair. The French call it the War of the Conquest as in when the British conquered all their shit.
1: (laughs) Yo, we bust out the world's smallest violin for the French Empire.
0: Yeah, they lost roughly half of their holdings in North America, which was about half or about a third of the continent. So, not a great look for them. This also teed up a whole series of problems following the Treaty of Paris 1763 edition, because that's the one and only place anybody liked to sign treaties for like 300 years. The big outcome was that the British colonies got to claim ownership of most of the land between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, but they weren't actually allowed to settle there because that would spark wars with all of the native nations who already had it. The other big change was that the Brits back in Britain thought their colonists ought to pay for all this defending the colonies they had just done, and governments make that happen with taxes. Thing
1: tells me, yeah, I know where this is going, I think. This is one part they did cover in American history class.
0: Yeah, this is the part everyone should be roughly familiar with. These became the two big grievances that roughly 30% of Anglo-American colonists were really stuck on for the next decade and a half. They rioted over this. They threw riotous tea parties over this. They set up covert militia stockpiles and command centers at Lexington and Concord over this. In short, it was mostly the grievances from the fallout of the French and Indian War that set the stage for the American Revolution.
1: USA, USA, USA.
0: Go us. And, you know, there is validity to the point of they didn't have a problem with being taxed. They just wanted to have representatives in parliament to negotiate fairer taxes. To which I say, have you met an American? What do you think they would have negotiated that tax rate as?
1: (laughs) Yeah, let me negotiate this. The answer of what I will accept is zero. Yeah, I know. The, the acceptable American tax rate uh, for roughly 30% of Americans has been and will always be none, please.
0: And the acceptable amount of North America to own will be as much as possible. Oh, yeah. And those were really the two sticking points. Taxes and we want to take that land over there. Which, to be fair, they had spent a lot of time fighting and dying to be allowed to do, only to be told they could claim it but not do anything with it. And I would say they just shouldn't claim it in the first place because there's already people there. But I can see how if you had fought a war to conquer it and then your government was like, no, you can't go, I can see why that would piss people off. The U.S. War for Independence was the second big war between the French and British that dragged their native allies along for the ride, especially after the Americans convinced the French to get involved because they could bring in Native allies from their Louisiana territory as well. This time, the Muskogee got more involved because it wasn't so focused up north, and joined on the side of the British because the war was being fought up and down the whole eastern seaboard. The American colonists really wanted to take Muskogee land for themselves, so a lot of Native nations that stood to lose the most saw the British as the overall more useful side in this fight. Now, Asha, you may not be aware of this, but in 1776, these uppity colonists declared themselves independent from the British Empire. Not sure if you've heard that one before.
1: Oh, wow, this is, this is news to me, Added This is, who oh boy have to process this one. You know, these these groups these, these groups love to just declare themselves independent all the time throughout history. You know, just some group or other says we're independent now. We know that never goes well. I'm sure this didn't work out.
0: I think that is a matter of perspective. <laughs>
1: well, it didn't work out for the native groups who sided with the British.
0: Or the British for that matter. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> or the French. Or the Spanish, or really just us. Yeah. Um, just us white Americans. And in 1783, with so much help from the French that it literally bankrupt the French monarchy, the colonists won. They kicked the Brits out with another Treaty of Paris and became the land of freedom, liberty, and equality for white landowning men forever as the United States of America.
1: USA, USA, USA.
0: You know, just fun historical trivia. I'm sure nothing will ever come of that. And that brings us to the core of the real story today. The first war in independent American history, and our very first friend of the show. Because somehow, even though he dies in this episode, he will still keep coming up. Everyone meet Alexander MacGillivray. As far as I can tell, he eventually just went by Alex or Alec in Daily Life, At least, a lot of the articles I found about him called him that, and I will too, so I don't have to say that whole damn name. In spite of his name, Alex was actually a Muskogee leader who also went by the name Hobo Hilimiko, which is usually translated as Good Child King, though that's a bit misleading. The British colonies had a habit of translating most native words that could be translated as chief or mayor or headman or basically any other form of leader as king when translating personal names. Still, it was the name that Alexander MacGillivray would use and eventually try to live up to. As a general rule, I try to use whatever the most recognizable version of a name is to help people follow along and to avoid slipping into the impulse to treat multi-word phrases like European first and last names. Plus, Alex was only half Muskogee, so he went by Alex most of the time anyway. He was born in a village along the Coosa River in 1750, the son of a half-Buscogee, half-French woman named Sahoy Marchand, and Lachlan MacGilveray a Scottish clan noble plantation owner and fur trader.
1: That's That sure is a type of
0: guy. Yeah, Lachlan of Clan MacGilveray I apologize to the people of Scotland. Uh, you'll be... Economically worse off and every other way better off when you become an independent nation of Scotland. Uh, Alexander initially lived with his father in Augusta, Georgia, where Lachlan had a plantation. And it's a plantation in 1750s Georgia. So that means just shitloads of enslaved black people and during the course of alexander's childhood lachlan grew to become one of the wealthiest members of george's planter aristocracy dealing in human chattel and cotton as well as furs when alex was twenty three he was sent up to charleston south carolina to live and study with a scottish relative Learning Latin and ancient Greek because that's what passed for education in the 1770s.
1: I'm imagining trying to learn ancient Greek from a Scottish person, and the accent is blowing my mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I what? And it, here's the thing: obviously, I do ancient Greece through the history of Persia all the time. I want to know if uh the Greek tutor for Clan MacGilvery was a tonal accent guy or a stress accent guy because that is a heated debate in uh ancient greek teaching today and i just i can't imagine a scottish person speaking a tonal language
1: yeah scottish person speaking tonal ancient greek in georgia or in south carolina amazing
0: in south carolina
1: <laughs> that is that that's like a you know, that's, a, that's a, a, you know, like a Milo Edwards level of accent that I can't even begin to fathom. No. I just can't.
0: <laughs> it's a type of accent that doesn't exist anymore.
1: <laughs> oh, fantastic.
0: Now, In spite of all of this, Alex was always the odd one out in colonial high society because he was considered a mestizo, half white and half indigenous. And when the revolution kicked off... Alex started feeling even more out of place. His father was Scottish nobility, so Lachlan fucked right off back to Scotland, leaving Alex more alone than ever. And in 1777, Alexander MacGilvary went back to live with his mother's people. Unlike European or even many other uh, native nation societies, Muskogee women had a great deal of freedom in their sexuality before marriage. So, family lineage was traced through the maternal line, also known as the only one you can trace without a paternity test, which wouldn't be invented for another 200 years. It's like our system makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost like one of those is somewhat more logical than another one, but you know.
0: Yeah. How do you know he's his son? Well, he's got a a similar sort of-ish nose. How do you know... He's her d- son. Well she she squeezed him out. Like
1: Yeah, we we, we know what happened. Like
0: we've got we witnesses. Like we've got yeah, witnesses. <laughs> And weirdly this is a debate that comes up on both of my podcasts now. But this meant as far as Muskogee custom was concerned, Alex was one of them. As the historian Claudio Sant puts it in his book, A New Order of Things, Power, Property, and Transformation of the Creek Indians, were he not Creek, Muscogees easily could have dismissed him as an interloper. Yet, at the same time, McIlveray was deeply alienated from most Creek traditions, and from the vast majority of the Creek people. This contradiction placed him at the center of a growing fissure.
1: Yeah, I can see that. He's not really at home or welcome in either of the cultures that of which he should should or could be a part, you know, because it's not like the white people in America are going to accept him. Uh, and it's, you know, he doesn't know anything about the, you know, Muskegee or Creek traditions with which he could participate because so, he's somewhat alienated from both of those. And I feel like that would really suck.
0: Well, and the thing is, at this point in his life, he's 27. He's got a lot of time to still make a name for himself, and his father is bizarrely wealthy. He could have forced himself into a position of importance in white society if he had wanted to. He's only a quarter Muskogee here. But his dad was a loyalist, so he now has no place in white America— because all of his family's plantations have just been seized by the Continental Congress. Uh, Yeah, that's a bit rough. So he took what resources he had, went west, and went to the Muskogee, because they weren't going to hang him.
1: Yeah, yeah, fair. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's fair.
0: Unlike most of his newfound community, Alex was literate, formally educated, and fully familiar with white colonial life.
1: Yeah, he can speak Greek with a Scottish accent.
0: (laughs) I can't even imagine it. (laughs) Being able to do that put him in an ideal position to act as the major negotiator for the Muscogee Confederation with both the British and the Americans. Which he was so good at that Albert James Pickett, a 19th century historian of the American South compared him to the future friend of the show, Talleyrand.
1: Ooh, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty baller comparison.
0: Yeah, he is good at what he does. This role allowed Alexander to rise to a sort of unique position in Muskogee society. In the 18th century, the Muskogee were just about as close to a politically anarchist society as anybody on the continent could be. They had a representative council and a primary chief who acted as their overall military commander and head of state, sort of, when negotiating with the colonial powers. But nobody was king of the Muskogee, and even village chiefs had to have the consent of their people to really get anything done. Alex was just so much better suited to the job of negotiating with the Brits and the Americans that he essentially took con- personal control of Muskogee diplomacy within about four years of joining the tribe. He wasn't a military genius, and he left most of the actual fighting to the experienced war leaders, but it was Alex McGilveray who orchestrated their foreign alliances. That means that it was him negotiating with the Shawnee, from the Ohio River Valley to the north when they tried to form an alliance with the Chickamauga Cherokee based out of modern Tennessee in 1782. The plan was to launch an offensive against the Americans while the Continental Army was focusing all its efforts on the coast, but the British intervened, taking command of the Chickamauga and disrupting the autonomous action that Alexander was trying to carry out.
1: The British came and just stuck their, you know, just stuck their dicks in it and made it worse because there was a good plan going. And then they were like, "But we need to be in charge."
0: Yeah, they were gathering uh, about a thousand warriors to go occupy Pittsburgh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Off only. Sorry, Pittsburgh yeah. friends.
0: Ooh, yeah, my my uh, childhood would not have existed. <laughs> <laughs> All through the war, both Cherokee and Muscogee forces were fighting alongside the British in all of the major battles of the southern and western theaters of the Revolution. They were crucial British allies in the occupations of Augusta and Savannah, Georgia, and they were constantly raiding American forts on the western side of the Appalachian Mountains. Over the course of 1783, it was beginning to become clear that the colonists were going to win, and representatives from various indigenous nations all over Western North America met several times trying to arrange a federation of Indians, as they called it in their own documents, trying to oppose the Americans directly. However, British withdrawal and the Treaty of Paris later that year put the kibosh on those plans because they just didn't have time to get everything together before they lost their military support. Now, I do want to note that Alex and the Muscogee were not the only indigenous people to start resisting the newborn United States basically as soon as the war was over. The same sort of periodic raids and boundary disputes that had defined European and indigenous relations for about 300 years kept happening up and down the mountains. But there were also many native leaders like Alex who wanted to still form that united front in a sort of pan-indigenous alliance against the United States. One of the newly formed countries stated goals in gaining independence was to seize their territory to seize territory from these native nations potentially the most committed and revanchist of these anti-us freedom fighters was dragging canoe de facto leader of the chickamauga cherokee who had moved west to the edge of muskogee territory specifically because his people wanted to keep fighting after the rest of the Cherokee had arranged a treaty with the United States. They will come in and out of today's story, both because they were some of the Muskogee's principal allies and because they launched a joint campaign against white settlers in the Cumberland Basin of what is now Tennessee at almost the exact same time that the Muskogee attacked the state of Georgia. The main reason that they are not the subject of this episode is that their war started a couple of weeks after the Oconee War. (laughs) (laughs) Also, based on my criteria for the show, that particular war is a little complicated because it was initially fought against the state of Franklin, which basically tried to pull a Texas by just stealing land from another nation, declaring themselves independent, and hoping the U.S. would annex them. Given the existence of Tennessee... You can see how that went.
1: (laughs) Uh, That was uh, something uh, that settlers did a few times in U.S. history.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And it only really worked once.
1: (laughs) I mean, it also kind of worked for Hawaii.
0: Mm. That's true. Hawaii was a little more directly conquered, just by m- mercenaries.
1: Yeah, it was mercenaries, but they moved there overthrew the ruler and then just said, "Hey, America, you just come on in now. Thank you very much." Yeah, uh, there, there was that. W- there was one guy whose name I can't remember who, like, around you know after the Civil War era, just kept like trying to go to like Mexico and other Central American countries, trying to like overthrow them, hoping that he could set himself up to then like maybe get the U S to annex him. I can't remember his name, but he was just like adventuring down around there being like, I can conquer one of these places and make it American. I think. So it seems to be a very, it's a very American uh, impulse. I think.
0: I couldn't even guess because there's like 50 of those guys. (laughs) Just. And also I've been reading about the like 12 attempts to conquer Florida this week. I got no clue. (laughs) Alex McGilvray was outraged when the actual primary chiefs of the Eastern Muskogee Confederation, Hapoithle Miko and Anea Miko, signed the Treaty of Augusta, ceding all 800 acres of land between the Oguichi River and the Oconee Rivers to the state of Georgia. That was technically these two chiefs' prerogative. It was their tribe's lands, they had the support of their people— but Alex didn't want to give an inch, no matter how exhausted his people were from almost a decade of open war with the Americans. He wasn't alone in that, and despite still not having any official position in the Muskogee Confederacy, Alex McGilvary became the de facto leader of his people. He was already treated that way by the Americans, routinely acting as the official representative for the Confederacy while dealing with the new United States at large, And increasingly, he started positioning himself that way in domestic politics as well. Simultaneously, he was still in contact with Dragging Canoe, who was also furious about American independence. So the two of them reached out to Spanish Florida, specifically the colony of West Florida, because good God, there used to be two of them.
1: (laughs) West Florida, including all the best parts of Florida, like Tampa Bay.
0: No, this was the, it was really more like North Florida because it was mostly the panhandle.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. So the even worse part of Florida.
0: Uh Uh-huh. The West Florida was the worst Florida. Worst iteration of Florida.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which I got to be honest with you. I don't think that's any different now. It's probably still the worst part of Florida. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to uh, any of your potential listener, listeners that live in, you know, Tallahassee or something, but uh, so Panama City Beach is where everyone from my college went for spring break, so I can't imagine it's any good.
0: <laughs> well, it's just that little bullseye zone for hurricanes that hit the Gulf, too. Like, <laughs> you can't build anything nice there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no. Just some cheap hotels for a college for college kids to stay in,
0: and really, what else does a city need?
1: <laughs> I asked the landlords here. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, that's that seems like a good opportunity. Uh, you too can find cheap hotels uh, by listening to this ad. Fuck if I know.
4: In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selick, as I go back to retell the story of Ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen or subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com, or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at castinggreece or on Facebook at casting through ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there.
0: Let's say, and we're back. Where were we? We were in West Florida, the shittiest Florida.. <laughs> yeah. Here, Dragging Canoe and Alex McGilveray met with the Spanish governor for the Treaty of Pensacola, which established Spanish recognition for Muskogee sovereignty over all of the land that Alexander's rivals had ceded to Georgia giving him a legitimate European justification for reinvading the territory.
1: Met with Spanish governor Juan de la Fuentes, Juan de, la, de Leon, de la Cordoba, Feliz Navidad, or something. Because every Spanish governor had 11 names in this period, because they were all Spanish nobility.
0: I had it written down at one point. It was something with a Z. He's not important to this story. He, he mostly just keeps sending them guns. But what is important is that Spain now controlled both of the Floridas, (laughs) Louisiana, which at this point meant the entire center of the North American continent, and most of Western North America. But they, too, were worried about the newborn United States and its obvious expansionist ambitions, and they wanted to use the Muskogee and the Cherokee as a buffer. The Spanish then sponsored and mediated a series of native conferences, first in Pensacola right after that treaty, then in Mobile, Alabama, and again at Dragging Canoes Capital in Amaga... Eh. In Amaga Uni. I did get that right. Over the course of 1784 and 1785. Here... Many native delegates from across the western territories claimed by the United States met to hammer out their own alliances and plans to resist American expansion. Most of the same delegates with territory further up north also met in Detroit under British auspices in late 1785 to form an alliance that would eventually be called the United Indian Nations, which I'll have a whole nother episode on eventually. Between the Mobile and Amaga Uni conferences, Alexander McGilveray met with a war council of southern tribes at the town of Tukabachi along the Tualiga River in March of seventeen eighty five, and by April, a Muskogee war chief called Mad Dog was already leading attacks into Georgian territory, burning and pillaging plantations and frontier settlements as they went. Why is it? Why is there always a mad dog in every fucking war?
1: (laughs) Look, yeah, uh, humans are human. And every war, there's got to be some guy who's like, I'm just a mad dog.
3: Right.
1: I got to get in there. There's one everywhere or if you're, you know, again, if you're me in college, it's, you know, the pack of 36 beers that you're drinking when you're playing beer pong. <laughs> Cause I don't know if, I don't know if mad dog exists anywhere beside Wisconsin, but it was the cheap beer we drank. So, you know, uh,
0: I love that. I love that every college in America is either drinking Natty light or their local preferred shitty light beer.
1: I mean, I can look right now. Um, I was going to see if I could find Mad Dog, but Mad Dog was a really terrible, shitty beer. You got like 36 of them for like $14, and we used it to fill our beer pong. I
0: have a fond memory of uh, being definitely legal age to have alcohol and filling up a backpack full of uh, 36-pack of Natty Light cans. Take back to campus because we had a dry campus.
1: Oof. Oof
0: and I definitely wasn't 19 during this story, uh, (laughs) that we bought with my friend's fake Shanghai ID, uh, and we thought we were busted when a Domino's worker came out from the restaurant behind the grocery store, and he just wanted a beer. And we were like, yeah, sure, (laughs) have a beer while you're working, while you're on shift at Domino's.
1: (laughs) Probably as a delivery driver.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I don't... (laughs) <laughs> need to think about it this was in 2015 i don't care anymore
1: <laughs> yeah see I, I went to college in wisconsin so you're like legally yeah. obligated to be drunk most of the time
0: look this was at the only whole foods anybody's ever seen somebody get stabbed outside of it's fine this <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so sorry, our local mad dog our current mad dog
0: yes matt mad dog war chief of the muskogee people uh is invading georgia And living up to his name, these Muskogee attacks were characteristically brutal in the eyes of the white settlers. In one instance, a woman called Mrs. Thrasher was found, quote, "...alive, scalped, wounded in both her thighs, her right breast, with balls, and stabbed in her left breast with a knife, her left arm cut nearly off, as is supposed with a tomahawk, of which wound she died about hours." Going to assume when they say "with balls," they mean like musket balls. I would assume so. But like, there's no additional context here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wounded with balls.
0: Mm. Yeah. Oh, the
1: pass was great.
0: Now, this is a really bizarre thing about war in this kind of early modern period. By the end of the 18th century, European norms of "quote unquote" noble and respectable war were pretty much settled but war with indigenous people being colonized operated in this sort of hypocritical gray zone where rape, mutilation, and pillaging were still standard operating procedure, usually on both sides. For example, Mm -hmm. while these Muskogee raids were going on, the state and or Republic of Franklin over in Tennessee was fighting with Dragon Canoe in the Cherokee by issuing the first independent American bounty on Native American scalps and burning one of the last three Chickamauga villages still resisting this wave of white settlement.
1: Is it putting a bounty on, on indigenous people's heads, I call that, uh, I call that the Australian mm. tactic.
0: I think we were doing it first, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what? Look...
0: And this is Georgia. This is the prototype for Australia. (laughs) Penal colonies all the way.
1: It is. It is the Australian prototype.
0: (laughs) Speaking of Franklin, summer of 1785 also saw Muskogee from modern Alabama uh, acting on Alex's orders, join the Chickamauga Cherokee in a five-month guerrilla siege against the Franklinites killing, capturing, or driving off any new settlers trickling in from North Carolina, burning the outermost white settlements, and plundering basically any movable wealth they could get their hands on to finance the war. And the weird thing is, even in the American legal view, the Chickamauga faction of the Cherokee were completely justified.
1: They had the legal standing to do so, yeah, even according to the American laws.
0: Yeah, as one Franklin legislator put it, I am taking every measure in my power to prevent encroachments on Indian lands. This, however, is a a difficult task because North Carolina actually sold the land up to these towns. I'm doing everything I can not to steal this land, but goddamn North (laughs) Carolina went and sold it to the Cherokee first. How can I not steal it? (laughs) Just the most colonial brain, motherfucker.
1: We're like literally in the middle of inventing Manifest Destiny at this point, so.
0: Yes, and and that's going to be a whole thing because not everybody is on board with it yet. But there's just enough people who are like, well, there's land over there and those people aren't white, so it's ours.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it, we can say that we people forget, and I think American history forgets that not everyone was on board with that as a concept. Like, early on. It had to be, like, pitched and sold it, and enforced for it to become, like, an American thing.
0: Yeah. George Washington wasn't on board with it. His, his plan was to Europeanize the indigenous people and then make each one a state. Hell yeah. Which 50, would have been...
1: thousand states. <laughs>
0: right. Which, and also, you know, he didn't know how far west they were going to end up. He was like, well, we stop at the river. After that, it's Spain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Technically, we didn't even own to the river yet, I don't think.
0: I This is the, the process of figuring that out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So th- things kept going like this with s- two or so small raids a month against both Franklin and Georgia until the end of 1785, when the Congress of the Confederation that is, the United States Congress, because we were still operating under the terrible system of the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution came about, Congress reached out to the Cherokee and the Georgia State Legislature to try and negotiate with the Muskogee. In both cases, they did sign treaties, but only with the native representatives who came, And since the independent Chickamauga towns didn't send delegates and Alex McGilvery didn't send delegates, the Cherokee Treaty of Hopewell is mostly just reaffirming existing agreements. The situation in Georgia was more complicated. The treaty, called the Treaty of Gelfington, was supposed to settle the dispute over the Oconee Territory once and for all, or at least until the colonists had enough free time and manpower to take it by force. And Alex McGilveray had promised the Georgians that he would be there in person to negotiate. He skipped the negotiations, just straight-up ghosted the Georgian representatives, and instead it was just Hapoithle Miko and Neamiko meeting, like the Cherokee, up at the Hopewell Plantation in South Carolina, basically saying, oh yeah, we did make that agreement a couple years ago. On the American side, everyone knew that this treaty was worthless without Alex's input, and this burned any remaining respect Hapoife Miko and Anea Miko had for Alex going forward.
1: He would say, it seemed like he was pretty set on his path and wasn't going to be negotiating
0: anyway, so. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> But Trevor from the future is here to say that Alexander McGilveray's continued war against the United States and Georgia will wait until part two, because I did not realize how long things would take with a guest. Asha, from the end of part two, share your podcast here.
1: Sure, if you want... Uh, to hear me pretend to know things, uh, you can, uh, follow my podcast, which is Swords, sorcery, and socialism. We are a literature podcast where reads fantasy and sci-fi books, and then talk about the politics that are either obvious or hidden inside of them. You know, there's a lot of times, there's a lot of times, you know, what the author is trying to get across to you. And there's a lot of times the author gets across to you some stuff that I don't think they even knew they were putting in their book. And that's kind of what we're here to, uh, talk about so if you like fantasy and sci-fi books, you can uh, check us out.
0: Once again, for more information about Secret Wars, please go to secretwarspod.com to find an about page, some additional resources, and if you are already willing, ways to financially support my projects. Specifically, Patreon.com slash History of Persia is now also going to be home to the Secret Wars project and everything else from Hopful Media. I'm still working out benefits for that, but at least at the $1 tier, you will get access to an ad-free version of this feed. Until next week, do me a favor, and don't start any foreign wars while I'm away.
4: You are listening to the History of Persia podcast, and as we've been hearing from Trevor, the history of the Persian Empire is a story of Persian domination of much of the Middle East and Central Asia. But this was not the first time these lands were conquered, and it would certainly not be the last. I don't want to give too much away, but in the year 329 BCE, the important Persian city of Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan was conquered by some guy by the name of Alexander... But what's interesting about this city is that about 1700 years later, this same city, Samarkand, would be the glowing capital of an empire forged by a man known as Timur, or Tamerlane, or simply Timur. And Timur has gone down in history as a fantastic tactician, a man who supposedly never lost a battle, a great patron of the arts, and one of the most brutal conquerors of all time. From about 1365 until 1405 CE, Timur was almost constantly at war, building for himself an empire that stretched from modern-day Turkey to India, from Syria to the Russian steppe, and I want to know how and why this happened. If that sounds interesting to you and you want the story of Timur told by a guy who talks too fast and has loud neighbors, then check out my show, The Timur Podcast. Find out more about it at timurpodcast.com or listen to it in most places where you find podcasts. And with that said, take it away, Trevor.
0: If you're listening to this, you probably know that the United States of America gets involved in a lot of foreign wars. We all know the big ones, World War I, World War II, Korea, sort of, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq again. But before and in between all that the story a lot of us heard in school is that the U.S. military didn't get out much. Turns out, that's kind of a blatant lie. I'm gonna guess a lot of us don't know about the multiple Spanish-American wars, the wars that led up to the Battle of Little Bighorn, or the baffling number of times we invaded Mexico. Odds are, you've never even heard of things like the time the Marines invaded Taiwan or the Oconee Wars. I'm Trevor Cully, host of the new podcast America Secret Wars, where I am going to sit down with a guest in each episode and dive into the history of all the forgotten and overlooked times that the United States deployed military force against other nations. You can find America Secret Wars at secretwarspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.